0: This is The Guardian.
1: It's been another week of extraordinarily high drama in British politics, starting with the news that Nicola Sturgeon is to quit as Scotland's First Minister.
2: My decision comes from a place of
1: duty and of love. It's the end of an era for Sturgeon personally after eight years at the top, but where does that leave the Scottish landscape she dominated for so long? Meanwhile, at Westminster, Keir Starmer confirmed that former leader Jeremy Corbyn won't be allowed to stand as a Labour candidate at the next election and issued this challenge to critics on the left.
3: If you don't like the changes that we've made, I say the door is open and you can leave.
1: We ask what that means both for the left and for a Conservative party that built its majority on promising to get Brexit done and keep Jeremy Corbyn out. I'm Gabby Hinsliff, I'm in for John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Deputy Political Editor Jessica Elgott, live from Westminster, and former Conservative MP and Cabinet Minister David Gork. Hello both. Hello. Hello. It's been a really big week, so we're going to get right down to business and start with Nicola Sturgeon. After an extraordinary run at the top, she has announced her retirement. She'll stay on as an MSP until the next election, but the SNP will elect a new leader. It's not a total shock. Uh, After eight gruelling years, including leading Scotland through Covid, she's hinted a few times that she'd had enough. But the timing is certainly unexpected and it's prompted a few questions about why she's going. Echoing New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, who recently quit saying she had nothing left in the tank, Sturgeon said she was a human being and had basically
2: reached her limit. When I entered government in 2007, my niece and youngest nephew were babies just months old. As I step down, they are about to celebrate their 17th birthdays. Now that I think about it, that's exactly the age to be horrified at the thought of your auntie suddenly having more time for you. (laughs) My point is this. Giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. A First Minister is never off duty, particularly in this day and age, there is virtually no privacy. Even ordinary stuff that most people take for granted, like going for a coffee with friends or for a walk in your own, becomes very difficult. And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity, dare I say it, brutality to life as a politician than in years gone by. But the announcement follows a police investigation into the SNP's
1: finances that hits quite close to home. Sturgeon's husband, Peter Morrell, also happens to be chief executive of the SNP, plus a bruising row over trans rights. Jess, first of all, what do you think Nicola Sturgeon's political legacy will be? She didn't deliver Scottish independence, but has she moved Scotland a bit closer to it?
0: Um, oh, That's a very difficult question to say about whether she's she's moved Scotland closer to it, because almost by the fact of her resignation... She is moving Scotland further away from it. She's one of the most formidable politicians of the last decade, perhaps perhaps the most formidable of the last decade in UK politics.
1: She does leave pretty big shoes to fill, but will there be a bit of a sigh of relief at Westminster, David, that such a formidable opponent is, has gone? You must have come across her professionally over the years.
3: Yes, I did. Um, we were both members of a, of a committee that was dealing with Brexit. So we had various cabinet ministers and the first ministers of... Uh, Scotland and Wales and she attended that and I think Jess's word formidable is the, is the right one um, it wasn't necessarily the sort of warmest and friendliest of environments um, although I had some sympathy with some of her concerns uh, but yeah she, she's really tough uh, and she's a very effective communicator uh, and I think you know, go back to the sort of pandemic period and you look at the press conferences that she was doing and compare that With Boris Johnson's press conferences, yeah, if you were Scottish and you looked at that, you think actually we could make independence work Um, because yeah, here is a proper serious person who can run a proper serious country. In
1: terms of the reason that she that she actually resigned now, I mean, she was always very good as a communicator at flipping between, as you say, having that kind of that gravitas, that kind of leadership skill, but also doing human well you know when I interviewed her she flipped in conversation very easily between you know quite high level conversations about Scottish politics and talking about you know her time as a sort of teenage punk she was a great reader you know she was a voracious she felt it conveyed a hint of that in a way that not all politicians too you you know the pressures of being in public life David do you, do you buy the argument that she'd just like her life back and that there's no deeper story to why she might be suddenly announcing her resignation now?
3: I think it's unusual. I mean, generally, I mean, some people do sometimes reach a point where they've had enough. But generally, if you're so absorbed by the job and so interested in politics, um, you, know, you don't normally walk away, uh, you know, at, at a relatively young age and just say, "Actually, I've had enough. I want to go and do something else." That I do find that surprising, uh, and so you do wonder why why that is. I, I, I you know, my personal view is that. That it's not quite clear where the s n p goes next. I don't just mean in terms of who succeeds her, but what's their strategy now um you know how that they're not going to get a referendum. The idea of using that general election as a as a sort of quasi referendum was sort of falling apart as an idea um She got herself on you know very difficult position on trans issues because of the the rapist case. She'd looked very, very uncomfortable in media interviews in recent weeks, you know, just saying, is, is, is this person a man or a woman? And she hasn't really been able to give a, a, an, a logical answer that, that fits in with how this person is being treated by the prison service in Scotland. So, yeah, she's got herself into a tangle on that. But I think more significantly, it's just not quite clear what the next step is for the, 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 the nationalist movement.
1: People do rarely quit when they're winning. I think there's, there's that feeling, isn't there? But I did listening to. Her, I was really reminded. I mean, she used almost the same language as Jacinda Ardern did in her, you know, resignation speech. I'm a human being. You know, we all have to know when we've we've reached her limits. I did wonder. I mean, if you look at the sort of generation of leaders that were in charge during the pandemic, not just Ardern, I mean, Scott Morrison, Angela Merkel, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, voluntarily or otherwise, <laughs> none of them are in are in office now. Do do you think? Kind of the responsibility. It was an extraordinary time to govern through, an extraordinary level of responsibility to have. Do you you think it's kind of burnt people out somehow in a way faster than it normally does?
0: I think it's a combination of lots of things. Obviously, the 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 gender debate in Scotland has been incredibly fraught, um, and. Um, you know, she has she has found herself in very uncomfortable situations in interviews over the past, as you know as David alluded to. There are obviously other things, you know, going on there. And I think one of the things that you know Labour has been hoping to capitalise in, on in Scotland is that the SNP the SNP has been in power for a long time. It is starting to look more like the Scottish establishment, and therefore people are able to blame the SNP as the party of government for lots of things that might not be going as well as they would like in Scotland. It seems like there's time for a change. And she's obviously been under personal pressure. There had been very bitter splits in her party, um, you know, over gender, but also, you know, over Alex Salmon. I mean there's been a there's been a physical split with, with the formation of the with the ALBA Party. And she talked about I thought very movingly about being only human as someone who has made mistakes. And someone who also, you know, sounds like she wants to get a more rounded life back. I think, you know, friends of hers have been have been telling some of our correspondents up in Scotland that she she's was affected by what Jacinda Ardern was saying in New Zealand about you know knowing when the time is right to step away and try to get a different balance. I think, you know, sometimes that can sound convenient uh, as an excuse, you know, a kind of if you know, if things are things aren't going as well for you. In politics as you might hope for but i'm sure there's some there's some truth to that as well
3: I, I just wonder whether it's it's a more general point that it's 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 hard to be a leader for a long time these days You yeah, know, there's just the level of scrutiny social media um and so on and so on and uh in, in the end most people well I, either the electorate is quite volatile which which it is um or the you know, it, for individuals, it, it's perhaps more wearing and it's not necessarily the pandemic. It could well be a factor in some of the cases, but maybe, maybe it's just that um, yeah, it's it's a more exhausting role than it once was.
0: I, I think we underestimated that at the time, how much how punishing that would be for political leaders um, or how much therefore or how, how much, you know, even if you've been an effective political leader or believed you had been in the way that Boris Johnson clearly believed he was, that the public would, you know, there would be a kind of public backlash or party backlash because you had to take so many unpopular decisions during that time I think we saw initially we actually saw like a big incumbency bounce during the pandemic but I remember writing that at the time of the local elections that we saw you know big surges for the SNP in Scotland big surges for the Conservatives in England and a big surge for Labour in Wales because there was a kind of incumbency effect of having these people in power and on TV all the time and it's the kind of people you could trust but that has just fallen
1: really fallen away. More drama to come then perhaps. Now to the other um, big sort of end of an era moment of the week I suppose. Keir Starmer had a long planned speech this week restating Labour's commitment to driving anti-semitism out of the party.
3: We have changed from a party that looked inward to a party that meets the public gaze, from a party of dogma to a party of patriotism, from a party of protest to a party of public service. When he was
1: asked by reporters, he confirmed that he would not be restoring the Labour whip to Jeremy Corbyn, who, of course, lost it after declining to apologise for comments Starmer felt had understated the degree of anti-Semitism in the party. That means Corbyn can't stand as a Labour MP at the next election, although, of course, he would still have the option of standing as an independent in Islington North. Jess, it's not a massive surprise um, that Corbyn's not being readmitted to the Labour party, perhaps, but it's still kind of a shock for a former party leader to be not allowed to stand even as a as a Labour backbencher. What does this mean for the Corbyn supporting wing of the Labour Party? Do you expect any MP to follow Corbyn out the door?
0: It's a very difficult decision for people who support Corbyn, you know, who remain in the Labour Party um, because uh, I'm pretty certain, as certain as I can be, that Corbyn does intend to stand as an independent. And that has you know, implications far beyond Islington North. It has implications for momentum, an organization which is essentially set up to support his leadership. If that if they campaign for Corbyn in Islington North, they'll be proscribed by the Labour Party and they won't be a Labour Party, won't be able to campaign, you know, within Labour Party structures anymore. That will probably mean that they can't campaign for him and therefore there'll be a big split in that organisation. And obviously, there are plenty of people who are very long time comrades of of Jeremy Corbyn who have suggested they intend to stand again at the next election, including people like Diane Abbott, John McDonnell, Richard Bergen, um, all of whom I'm sure there are plenty of the, you know, much more factional people in the Labour Party would love to see an excuse to to get rid of them as well. And they know that and they feel very, uh, you know, cautious about that. So they are walking on eggshells over this as well. And there is and that's. That's, I think, you know, there are some people who were close to Corbyn or former advisors who are cautious about him running as an independent because of the ripple effect it would have for other people and the future of the left in Labour. You know, for people around Keir Starmer, and you know, Starmer doesn't take any persuading to be hardline on this issue at all. But there are people who are very hardline who are around him, who have helped kind of reshape the Labour Party around him. You know, that's great. It's the fight they want to have. But you know, there's a risk. There, the other risk it is that he could win Islington North. I think that there is a very, very real possibility that he could. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating. And who would stand? Who will stand for Labour for him? It's, it's, it's a, it's a plum seat, but it's a very, very, very difficult race.
1: Going to be a bitter one, isn't it? I mean, David, we, you saw this in a way. Um, it went in the with the Tories who lost the whip over Brexit and had to consider whether they would want to run as independents. Could stand as independents? Are the odds kind of stacked against? independence often even if they're well loved locally
3: well i can obviously speak with a certain amount of personal experience here um
1: i didn't want to d- didn't want to <laughs> you, dredge you, you, up you, you <laughs> are, you tactfully memories dancing
3: around that gabby <laughs> but uh yeah no. If, if we're talking about um you know mps with major parties who lose the whip and then decide to run as independents um I, i'm i i can speak on this subject I, I have some i have some insight on this um the, um, well, of course, my, one of my biggest problems was, in fact, Jeremy Corbyn because running as an independent. Because people said, "Well, I've got to vote Tory because that's the only way of stopping Jeremy Corbyn." Um, so he's not going to have that problem. Um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe he will do. Maybe he will do better. It's 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 an interesting. First of all, I think Keir Starmer's right to lean into this, and he's probably a bit annoyed that Nicola Sturgeon has made her announcement today, so it doesn't get as much coverage. Um, oh, yeah, so you made the announcement on the same day, so it doesn't get as much coverage as it would otherwise have done. Um, I think in terms of Jeremy Corbyn running, my personal experience was it was terrific fun. Um, but if people think that Labour are going to win the general election fairly comfortably, uh, then they might well, I think that increases his chances of winning in Islington North because people won't, won't feel well. You know uh it's not going to affect how the government is 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 going to be if the election looks tighter then i think he'll 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 struggle and it's it is hard work you have to put an infrastructure in place but he's got months and months on which to do that he can make use of the momentum infrastructure he could probably flood the seat with activists um but You know, in in the end, very often voters are asking which of the two main party leaders do I want to be prime minister and will vote accordingly. Uh, And that was the biggest problem I found as an independent um, is that, you know, the, the answer is you either vote Conservative or you vote Labour or why would you vote for somebody else?
1: I Mr. Mean, must be feeling pretty confident to have done this. We have to assume he must feel that there's, you know, there's something in it for him that that he defines the Labour Party as as non corbynite is, is, and that that's useful for him. But it, it was still a bit of a risk. Start off this kind of divide. I mean, it could all get very ugly very quickly. That invitation for people, Labour people, to leave if they don't like it. You know, that was a. Bit of a throwing down of the gauntlet
3: there. It, it was, but look, I, I still, you're know, looking at it from the from if you're looking at it from a conservative perspective, is how do you attack Keir Starmer? And he's quite a hard person to attack, I mean, partly because he's not that well defined in in a lot of his views. Um, but the 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 one that I think does still have a bit of resonance is well, you know, you sat beside Jeremy Corbyn for some years. You wanted to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister. In 2019. Now, you know, everybody in politics kind of understands the difficult position that people are in, and do you stay around the table or do you resign in principle? Yeah, these are, these are, can be quite tough and finely balanced judgments. But, but I think it is a line that is quite effective for the conservatives that, you know, here is this person who is so obviously unsuited to high office. And, And I think the more Keir Starmer defines himself against. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, the easier it is for him to deal with that Conservative critique, and uh, the more likely it is he will appeal to those people who voted Conservative last time. So I, I think he needs to risk this. This is a this is a problem for him if he's not seen as tough enough, and the tougher he is, the better, I think, electorally it is for
1: him. But there'll be a lot of Labour voters and members, Jess, for whom this is a very painful moment you know it's leaving behind something that they believed in very intensely
0: I think you know the calculation is is everything that David said but also you know about what is the national moment for Labour looking like in 2024 the national moment is mostly about bringing back over people who voted conservative in in the last election and for them this is an you know therefore staking this is a very important particularly people who left the party because of Jeremy Corbyn um, or felt they couldn't vote for him. That's so important in so many seats. So even if they lose Islington North, the kind of the, the gain across the country nationally from taking this is, is, is important. I think, I think there are, you know, we have seen a lot of people leave the Labour party over the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn. So therefore you kind of get to a critical mass of like, if you haven't left yet, then you know, how many more people are there to leave? Um, and also you know i think there is a calculation which which david also touched on which is about you know how is it looking for labor in 2024 do people feel like they need to give every vote counts they they're so desperate to get to get out the to get the Tories out i think they i think the belief in in lotto is that 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 will be the prevailing view rather than people being sort of confident of a labor win and therefore you you're in a different situation in somewhere like Lisington north than you would have been eg when you had people like george galloway standing or you had you know, Ken, Ken Livingstone running as an independent, you know, in the mayoral, where Labour were in government, and you know, it was safe. You know, it was perf- perfectly safe for people on the left to to vote for independence or vote, you know, for a more left wing candidate. I think their gamble is that people will not feel like that in twenty twenty
1: four. Let's pause here for a minute. Up next, we'll talk uh, talking of divisive issues about Brexit. Yes, I'm afraid it's creeping back on the agenda again, and we will discuss why. Welcome back. Now, after weeks of below the radar negotiations with Brussels, this week brought reports that a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol could finally be imminent, with some saying it's already sitting on the Prime Minister's desk. Jesse, you've written about this uh, this week for The Guardian. What's going on?
0: Yeah, so we think that we are, we're pretty confident that sources are telling us that we're at that a point where there is at least a framework deal on the desk of Rishi Sunak, the shape of what you know that there are, I think, some details still to be thrashed out, including how do you define things like wholesale goods. But you know, broad, broadly speaking, the shape of the deal is on Rishi Sunak's desk. There's also sources stressing that there's a that things can go wrong at this stage. There are, uh, you know, issues the prime minister could raise that can throw the whole thing thing back to the negotiators. But ultimately, this is this is what it looks like we're going to get in terms of a deal to resolve the issues on the protocol, and that we're expecting Sunak to to start to make some calls to EU leaders about it latter end of this week and speak to them on the margins of the Munich Security Conference, which is also happening this weekend. So that sounds like things are very close and that we will get some sort of public announcement next week.
1: David, from what you know, do you think there's a deal here both sides can agree on? And is it going to make a a, a appreciable difference, really?
3: I think it will help. Yeah, it does seem to be something there I think there is still a big decision for Rishi Sunak to make because pretty sure that any deal that can be negotiated isn't going to satisfy the ERG in every respects probably won't satisfy the DUP either although they're briefing that they think they've met all of the DUP's tests Um, and so there is likely to be some resistance and um, I don't think there's anything that Rishi Sunak can do to avoid that. I don't think it's 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 possible to have a deal that is both negotiable with the EU and meets all of the ERG's um, objections. Uh, so, you know, he's going to have to see off some of his own people. He'll have the votes in Parliament. If there's a need for a vote in Parliament, no party will support it. Um, But this could be quite divisive within the Conservative Party. But but I think there's increasingly a recognition within government that, you know, where things are at the moment in terms of Brexit, how it's working, how the public see it working, the economic implications of it are all, you know, really negative. And unless they do something to try to at least reduce some of the problems. And remember, what we're really talking about is not just, you know, something that will massively improve things. It's about stopping things getting worse, because if you don't get a deal on this, you know at some point or other, you know what 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 happens? This this can escalate, you know maybe not into a full blown trade war, but that might happen. But you know things will things can get worse. You know things are, you know things are not great at the moment, but they could become more difficult for businesses wanting to trade with the EU and EU businesses wanting to trade here. So I, I think there is a there is a strong amount of pragmatism around uh, Downing Street and Whitehall at the moment, but but that hasn't permeated the entirety of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. Um, surprise, surprise, and if they're going to really make progress, then Sunak is going to have to have a row with some of his own MPs.
1: I've been there before. Um, the one thing that we did hear publicly from government um, this week on this question is uh, was an interview with the Work and Pensions Secretary, Mel Stride, who's uh, close to CNAC, um, who did uh, admit under some pressure this week that, that post-Brexit friction had had an impact on the UK's economic prospects. Let's just hear what he had to say about that.
3: I think if you have a situation where you create frictions between yourself and your major trading partners, I think you have to accept that that will have an impact. What I think we need to do now, and I know the government's absolutely determined on this, and we've got legislation that we're looking at uh, to this end, is to maximise the benefits of the freedoms that we now have, given that we're not part... Of the European Union,
1: in a way, it's a sort of statement of the bleeding obvious. But it, it's it's striking that for so long, it's one that cabinet ministers have avoided making. David, I mean, did go on to say that although he voted Remain, there's no going back, and there's lots of new opportunities post Brexit. But do you think there's been a slight change of tone within government? What's that telling us about what Sunak's thinking?
3: Yeah, I think there has been, and and I think what potentially we might be about to see is is almost a Brexit truce. I'm I'm, I'm I could overstate this, but. Labour don't want to talk about Brexit very much. They'd rather it drop down the agenda for the reasons that Jess mentioned, the you know, results of the last election and so on. The more sensible members of the government sort of recognise it's not working and if you're going to fix the economy, um, actually you need to make some improvements. Uh, I think there are two challenges to that. One is another bit of the Conservative Party is not happy with that. Um, you know, this, this is you know, any kind of uh, incremental improvement they'll portray as a sellout. Um, and you've got Nigel Farage saying the same thing. So there'll be some political heat on it. Secondly, um, over time, let's not overstate the economic benefits of all of this. It's useful and worthwhile. Uh, and yes, it stops getting things worse. And, you know, to be honest, it's a big improvement on you know Brexit wars. But it is not the sort of big transformative. Now the British economy, you know, can pound ahead because you know we've removed all the friction. You're still going to have a heck of a lot of friction. You're still going to have disadvantages for doing business in the UK, and there is still there are still going to be people popping up and saying, Look, if we're really serious about growth, we need to go further and faster." And you know, if it's not rejoin, um, then it's customs union or single market or both. And I don't think the debate is kind of going to go away.
1: But it does feel, I mean, the problem with both those agendas feels to me, as you say, that, you know, you, the, the kind of changes that are acceptable to everyone are by their nature very small, very limited changes. They don't necessarily deliver huge bang for buck they don't there's a the danger of everyone falling into a zone where you know you make a huge fuss about very very slightly improving Brexit and the public just says well I don't I notice you know I can't can't feel the difference is is any of that going to actually take us anywhere Jess or is it a sort of 10-year project to get back to some kind of rational I think that
0: there I think we are we're, start, we're starting to approach a uh, you know, a point at least in the country whether the, whether that's true in Westminster or not, whether you can have a ra- rational discussion about Brexit. But you just got to look. I was looking at some of these these polling yesterday. I mean, Brexit is used to be used to be seen as a kind of top priority for seventy two to seventy nine percent of voters, and it's now down to seventeen percent. And you know, people, people, you know, even if people have moved on from a lot of the technical issues, and there, and now there are so many people kind of. Far more concerned about the economy or about the health service. Now there are people. There are obviously an argument to be made that lots of those problems with the economy and indeed with the health service and and, and especially staffing in the health service are actually a direct result of Brexit. And Plenty of people will be will be making those arguments. But I think until you know, that's really inextricably linked in in people's minds. Their eyes will still glaze over when we talk about, you know, the finer points of the the Northern Ireland Protocol and whether there should be a role for the ECJ or not. And I think it's just, you know, it's just not the dividing line it once was in the country. And perhaps that will start to seep into a new generation at Westminster whenever we start, to, you know, whether when there has, if there is, kind of significant turnover, you know, in a future government.
1: Do you think it's next Parliament rather than this one, David? That will that will Finally, reach that point of not not automatically sorting everyone into remain leave and assuming that 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 dictates their positions on everything, and that that's the great dividing line. Or am I being a bit hopeful?
3: Yeah. I, well, I wonder. Um, look, it, it, who knows here? But my, my, I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, this sort of this truce that I was talking about becomes you know, particularly if, if Sunak can sort of see off the ERG. Um, might well become the sort of the overwhelming mood at the time of the next general election, so that Brexit really does sort of drop down the agenda, uh, and you know both the main parties are focused on relatively small incremental changes. Labour then gets in, and then the mood will ch- could change quite quickly. And before very much longer, people are saying, you know what, these incremental changes, they're actually not that valuable and they haven't made a huge amount of difference. And that at that point, you know, people will start to become a little bit, including in the Labour Party, but also outside the Labour Party, become a little bit more forthright, saying, they're no, actually sorry, this isn't good enough. This this isn't still isn't a close enough relationship with the EU because we've still got all this friction. We've still got all of these problems. Uh, and in fact, we need something much closer still. So, so I I I, I can actually see Brexit sort of dropping down further in the next couple of years. But as we go through the next Parliament, it becoming a more and more contentious issue as people look at the limitations of our of of, of even a incrementally improved relationship.
1: A temporary truce on Brexit. We'll, we'll take that. I mean, we rarely get to end on a hopeful note. So I think before we manage to talk ourselves out of it, I'm going to stop you there. Thank you so much, both of you this week. Thank you. Thank you. And goodbye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. We should say that our sister podcast, Guardian Politics Weekly America, is covering this week's uh, standoff with China in more detail. If that was also of interest to you, Jonathan Friedland and Julian Borger look into why a story about a possible spy balloon launched by China quickly led to the White House having to deny the existence of aliens and how communication on this story could end up thwarting any US defence strategy to legitimate threats from China. I also want to quickly highlight a Guardian event in which former Guardian columnist Gary Young will be joining Guardian writer Malik for a very special Guardian live streamed event available online worldwide on Monday, the 17th of April, between 8 and 9 pm. Gary's going to be speaking about his view on the history making key political moments he's witnessed during his remarkable three decade long career as a journalist. You can find all the information about this on our podcast page. Meanwhile, this episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier, the executive producers are Mazeb Tahaj and Nicole Jackson.